If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 2 as we continue our Advent celebration and um, those texts in particular that focus on the birth of the Savior in a focused way. And we're looking this morning at Luke chapter 2. And I know the bulletin says we're looking at verse 8 through 20, but I'd like us to look at verse 1 through 20. If you're using a copy of the Church Bible, you'll find that on page 857, 857. And I know, as usual, you'll find it a great help to be reading along in Scripture with me this morning as we look at God's Word together. Let me just briefly pray for us again as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are poor and needy, and yet you think on us. We are weak and sinful, and yet you have had mercy on us in Christ. We pray, our God, that you would open your word to us this morning by your Spirit. We pray that you would make us to see the Son in all of his glory. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us a new glimpse of your divine and matchless beauty, and that you would enable us to come to you, to bow low before you, to come confessing our sins and clinging to you and rejoicing for what you have accomplished for us at the cross and in your resurrection. We pray that you would draw near to us. We pray that you would have mercy on us. We pray that you would bless, especially the preaching of your word this morning. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Looking at Luke 2, beginning in verse 1, and here as Luke is giving that eyewitness and trustworthy account, well-researched account, He now says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I don't know how you announced uh, the birth of your children, but it has become commonplace on social media to see birth announcements. I saw what I thought was one of the oddest birth announcements recently. Um, Someone had 
taken their newborn baby and put them in a literal box with popcorn stuffing in it um, to, to intimate that this baby had been delivered to them. I thought it was kind of odd. People try to be creative with birth announcements. Uh, sometimes they do well, sometimes they fail miserably. And yet, everybody loves birth announcements. Everybody is excited to hear about the birth of a child, um, whether it's a boy or girl, what the child's name is, how big the child is, um, where the child was born and all of those details about the birth of children, and even more so when the child is royalty. Even to this day in the UK, they make an enormous deal, enormous celebrations and announcements about the birth of royal children. Um, And there's something fitting about uh, a child who is born to royalty receiving that sort of um, celebration and publicity and um, fame in the announcement about his or her birth. And it's interesting because when we come to the narratives in the Gospels, we really find the birth announcements of Jesus, but they're not made from Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph actually never make a birth announcement about Christ, and they're different than any other birth announcements that are made in this world. Um, There is actually nothing cute about the birth announcements of Jesus. Um, There is something gritty and raw about the birth announcement of Jesus here in this text. We're going to see that there is both an earthly significance to the birth announcement of Jesus and also a heavenly significance, and the heavenly significance is, as it were, hidden until the angels appear and make that announcement not to the uh, elite political leaders or religious leaders in Israel, but to the poor, despised, untrustworthy shepherds who are watching their sheep out in the field by night. And yet there is so much for us to learn as we look at this passage together. I want us to consider three things this morning. First, I want us to consider the importance about the setting of Christ's birth, and then I want us to consider the recipients of the announcement of his birth, and then I want us to consider the announcement itself, the setting, the recipients, and the announcement. We'll notice that Luke gives us that historical trigger. He says it was... During the period of the reign of Caesar Augustus that Mary and Joseph had to leave where they were and to go down to Bethlehem. Now, we know that behind that registration, behind that political maneuver, was the divine hand of God leading and guiding them so that what was spoken by Micah the prophet, Micah 5.2, though you are least among the rulers of Israel, though you are least among the towns of Israel, yet out of you shall come One, to be shepherd over my people whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting. Um, It's how we now sing all the time, O little town of Bethlehem. And uh, God in his providence brings Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem, and yet there's no pomp, there's no show, there's no place for them in Bethlehem. There's There's no room for them in the inn. And so Luke tells us as they go that Mary and Joseph and the newborn Savior um, there in Bethlehem find themselves somewhere in a cave, and Jesus himself was wrapped in swaddling clothes, probably dirty clothes that they had with them on the trip, and he was laid in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You know, it's interesting, um, here in these first seven verses, we're really given the earthly significance of the birth of Jesus. And that significance is humiliation. Um, Jesus was born to a poor peasant woman. Luke will tell us she didn't even have enough money 
for the sacrifice to consecrate her child. So she had to take the poor option to offer up the the turtle doves because she couldn't even afford what would have been the proper sacrifice. And, and there's no one welcoming the Savior. They're alone. They're, they're destitute. Um, Joseph himself, very interesting, had a right to the throne. I don't even think he knew that. Joseph was himself, as we heard last week from Pastor Barrett, he was in that line of kings. He, he in a very real sense, would have, should have been the king if Israel had progressed the way it should have in covenantal obedience to God from David on through that kingdom, and yet here they are, and they're outside somewhere in the cold, and um, more than likely, Jesus is being laid in a feeding trough. There's debate, but it's probably a feeding trough for animals. The Savior of the world, God over all. I want you to think about that. The God who right now gives us life and breath and all things was laid in a feeding trough for animals at his birth. And that humiliation at the birth of Jesus marks the rest of his life and the rest of his sufferings all the way to the cross. You know, there's something really amazing about that, that the humiliation of Jesus at his birth when he's wrapped in linen cloths and laid in a feeding trough is preparing us for him to be nailed to the cross and then wrapped in linen cloths and laid in the tomb. His whole life suffering, his whole life humiliation because of our sin. Why is Jesus in the manger? Because we're sinners. Why is Jesus in the manger? Because we're sinners. And yet, and yet, in that, in that estate of humiliation, he becomes, and this is beautiful, the most approachable being in the universe for sinners like us. Charles Spurgeon has this great meditation on the manger. He says, he bequeaths us his manger from which we learn how God came down to man and his cross to teach us how man may go up to God. But Spurgeon says, we might tremble to approach a throne, but we cannot fear to approach a manger. Isn't that awesome? Spurgeon will go on to essentially say, if you're a sinner in need of a savior, then you jump in the manger with the savior. You put yourself in there. You can come to him and you can get in the very manger with him and he will not turn any away. Spurgeon will say, it was one of the great remarks of Scripture that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors, that he would be identified his whole life with sinners like us. And he says in his birth, being born in such a lowly estate, come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Um. It's beautiful, isn't it? Before we hear those great words that now in Romans we have boldness to come to the throne of God, we have boldness to come to the Savior because of the estate in which he was born. If he had been born in a palace, you couldn't come to him. He would have been guarded. Um, that's, the, that's the estate in which Jesus finds himself, the Son of God, the eternal Son, born in a stable, thrown in a stable, Calvin says, placed in a manger, lodging refused him among men that heaven might be open to us. Isn't that awesome? All of that so that heaven would be open to you if you would trust in him and come to him. That's awesome. Secondly, I want us to consider the recipients of the birth announcement. Now, as I noted, Mary and Joseph don't send out cards. They don't, they don't announce this. If they had social media, it wouldn't be on Instagram. I'm sure of that. 
Um, and, and yet there is a birth announcement, and it is a birth announcement like no birth announcements. And here we have some shepherds, and they're out um, tending their flocks. And, and unbeknownst to them, the sky is about to light up with the greatest antiphonal choir singing the first composition of the Gloria to the most ordinary and average of people, and, um, and the great announcement of that one angel. Um, and we'll shepherds. Now, I want us to consider here in verses 8 through 20, Luke gives us the heavenly significance of the birth of the Savior. We've seen the earthly, we've seen the poverty, we've seen the humiliation, we've seen the abject, despised condition in which he is born. And now Luke tells us that there is a heavenly significance. Notice this, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, I like to imagine, because this happened in some shape or form, that in the throne room of heaven, the Almighty God calls together the whole host of angels, who are beings who are greater in power and glory than us in this life, who exist to do the will of God perfectly. They are his messengers, they run his errands, they always do his will, the unfallen angels. And and strikingly, he is announcing the birth of the Redeemer when it was a fallen angel who led our parents into rebellion. He now gathers together this whole host of angels and imagine, imagine for a second, that these powerful created spirit beings gathered before the throne of God hear that the Savior is now born The redemption that God has planned is now accomplished, and God, out of that whole host, is going to choose one of these angels, and as it were, is going to point to one of these angels, and he's going to say, you are going to go, and you are going to make that announcement. You, of all the angels, get to proclaim that all is now fulfilled in the fullness of time. And that angel goes, and he comes, and I like to imagine that angel asking the triune God, who, who am I going to? And, and the Lord saying, these shepherds hidden away in this field, these despised ones. Now, you know, the Bible says that the things of redemption are the things that angels long to look into. Peter tells us that in First Peter, that these are things that angels earnestly desire to look into because there was no redemption for unfallen angels. We fell in Adam. He represented us. God is going to send a second Adam to redeem us. The angels stood or fell on their own, and there was no redemption for fallen angels. There's no salvation, the writer of Hebrews tells us, and yet here God is sending the most glorious creature to the most ordinary and despised of men, to announce the birth of the angels, the king of glory, the second and last Adam. And it's interesting, if we looked at all of the scriptures and we looked at this passage, we would have to say there, there is a deep significance to the fact that it was shepherds who received this announcement. Um, we're, we're in the, the city of Bethlehem where David had been, remember David the shepherd, tending sheep, maybe in those very fields, um, when God called him to be the king and to be 
the head of the covenant and the one to whom God gave promises that he would sit on the throne and that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. And here the son of David is now born and he's in Bethlehem and he's in the manger. And here he sends fittingly the announcement to shepherds. And, and the shepherds, very interestingly, are out there tending sheep that are going to become sacrifices in Israel's sacrificial system, and they're going to point to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They are tending to the very sacrificial lambs that are going to be offered up, and here the angel is going to come and say, there is the Lamb of God come into the world to whom all those lambs were types pointing forward. And then there's the significance that the prophets often spoke about God sending, God being a great shepherd, and God sending a great shepherd, that he would give his people one shepherd to rule over them. And we know Jesus in John 10 uh, gives that great discourse, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And the writer of Hebrews says he's the great shepherd of the sheep, who through the blood of the everlasting covenant makes us complete, working in us what is well-pleasing in his sight. And Peter says, you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And so it's fitting that God would give this birth announcement of the Savior to shepherds. And then the scriptures would tell us that God would give his people pastors who would be shepherds. Literally, the word is used of elders who would care for the flock of God and So as the Savior and head of the church is born, it's fitting that the announcement is made to shepherds. But there's also a practical reason why the shepherds are the recipients of this birth announcement, and that is because shepherds were despised and untrustworthy, and later on in Israel's history would not even be allowed to be witnesses in court because they were considered to be liars. And yet God says, I am going to give the greatest news to the most despised of people, And they will be witnesses to me. And what God is saying is that none of us are deserving. Because if we're honest with ourselves, and if we wrote this story, and if it was up to us, we would not have the announcement of the birth of the greatest being in the universe given to despised poor, socially outcast, roughshod, despicable people like these shepherds. We would have it made to royalty, to the powerful, to the elite, to the famous. We have a penchant for that, you know. Um, And yet, if that announcement had been made to the religious elite or to the political elite, or to the socially, economically elite, they may have felt like they deserve that announcement. But when it's made to notorious sinners like these shepherds, we know that none of us deserve this announcement and that it's for all of us. Isn't that awesome? It's for all of us. If it was for the shepherds, it's for you and me. Um, it's the same point about him being born in the manger. Anybody can come to him. He's not going to turn any away that come to him. Phil Riken 
notes this. He says, what kind of welcome did Christ deserve? Jesus deserved to have every person from every nation come and worship him. He deserved to have every creature in the entire universe, from the fiercest lion to the tiniest insect, come to his cradle and give him praise. He deserved to have the creation itself offer him worship with the rocks crying out. He is the son of God. Anything less is an absolute acknowledgement of his royal person. Uh, then an absolute acknowledgement of his royal person is an insult to his dignity, but the angelic announcement was not made to royalty or religious leaders but to these shepherds in the field. You know, I, um, I think we need to hear that often because our consciences are hardwired to the covenant of works um, because of Adam. And, and whether we would ever verbalize it or not, we have a propensity to think, if I do good enough, then Christ can be mine then Christ will receive me. If I've just avoided those sins that so easily weigh me down, then Christ will be mine. If, if I'm religious enough, then Christ will be mine. If I do this, then Christ will be mine. And, and, and we do that. We get on that hamster wheel of the never enough quagmire of good works, never enough. And Jesus comes for sinners who will come to him so the question this morning is, have you come to him? Not do you know about him? Not have you sat under preaching about him for the better part of your life? Not can you quote Bible verses, have you come to him? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Have you embraced the Savior of sinners as he is freely offered to you in the announcement of the gospel? So that the Christ in the manger is the Christ on the cross saying, come to me with all your sin, with all your shame, with all your guilt, with all your burdens, come to me and I'll give you rest. It's an absolute promise. Now I want us to consider finally the announcement because really the substance of this passage is about that announcement. And as that angel comes, the first words, very interesting, the first, first words of Christmas are, fear not. Fear not, don't be afraid. The natural inclination of these shepherds was to be afraid. If you saw an angel, you would be afraid. In almost every case when men see angels in the Bible, they fall down as if they're dead. From the glory and the purity and the holiness of these heavenly beings. And yet that first word, because of everything else that's going to follow in the announcement and all that Christ is and all that he does, the first words are, do not be Afraid, Isn't that marvelous? That's God's word to us in the gospel. Do not be afraid. And then notice, it's as if this angel has every word perfectly prepared and bringing it from heaven. And do angels have moral intellect? Yes. And was he meditating on these words as he came from heaven to earth to make this pronouncement? Probably. And when he comes, notice... He says to them, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the peoples. Now, this is a remarkable statement because if you're anything like me, you've come to a point in your life where you can barely stomach to, to watch anything on the news or read anything on any news sites today because everything's bad news. And and the only good news is when they have like a morning show and they bring out puppies. And that's not really good news. It's entertainment. And, and it's not good news. 
and there's no real good news in this world. Just go home and, and get on whatever media of your choice. And it's all bad news. And the angel comes to the shepherds, and they know plenty of bad news in the fallen world and in their own interactions. And the angel says to them, fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the peoples. This is the best news. The Savior has come. And it brings about great joy. That's the product of this news. And it's universal in scope. It's for everyone under heaven, not just Israel, for all the nations. This is the greatest announcement in the history of humanity. And then notice what the angel says to the shepherds in verse 11, for unto you. Now, it's interesting, we read Isaiah 6, verses uh, 7 through 9 this morning, and there, when Isaiah is giving that prophecy about the birth of the Redeemer, he opens it by saying, for unto you, for unto us, I'm sorry, Isaiah says, for unto us. And here the angel says to the shepherds, unto you. Now, what's, what's interesting about that is that Jesus has been born to Mary and Joseph. But the angel doesn't say, for unto Mary and Joseph has been born this day in the city of David a Savior. He says, unto you has been born. This announcement, this birth announcement is for you and for me, for us. This is a birth announcement of a child that has been born to us. Isn't that awesome? We, we are to own this as our own. Unto us is born. And then notice that the angel says, This day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. There is weight to every single title that that angel mentions. This is, this is the son of David. This is the Savior of the world. This is the anointed one, the prophet, priest, and king. This is the Lord. This is God, born in the manger, this day to us. Amen. And then notice that in verse 13, suddenly now this one messenger that God has sent is joined by a multitude of angels, and they're praising God, and and they're saying in perhaps loud voices, it, it probably wasn't a song, but they're singing the glory, a glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. The birth of this child brings glory to God. Um, This is not like so much in this world that is spectacular and well-produced and beautiful and entertaining that brings glory to men. Glory to God in the highest. The angels understand that God is putting his stamp on this child, that God has come in the flesh to bring glory to himself by redeeming a people for himself from every tongue and tribe and nation, and and they burst out spontaneously with the glory. They're enshrouded in glory. You'll notice also that angel appeared back in verse 9, the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is the Shekinah glory once contained in the most holy place in the temple, now filling the skies around these shepherds. And then the angel says... And on earth, peace. Um, It's very interesting. The angel's praise has a sight to both heaven and earth in the birth of this child. Glory to God in the highest and on earth because he's the mediator. 
as we read this morning. He's the mediator between God and man. He came to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth, the Apostle Paul says. Um, you don't know this about me. You're about to. I love the Beatles. The Beatles are amazing um, and not Christian at all. And, um, and the best that the Beatles could do is all we are saying is give peace a chance. Just give it a chance. That's what the world wants. The world wants peace. Unbelievers want peace. But they want it on the, they want it on the horizontal level. They don't want it on the vertical. But it starts Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Because the hostility and the enmity and the warring and the turmoil and the broken relationships on the horizontal relation in this world are all absolutely rooted in our enmity and hostility to Almighty God by nature. So that unless God is the one that initiates the reconciliation, and thank God he did by sending Jesus, none of us would ever know peace. The Apostle Paul sees this proclamation fulfilled at the cross. He says he has made peace by the blood of the cross. There's a story about John Bunyan. I love John Bunyan. He's um, In his grace abounding to the chief of sinners, he's talking about Um, his turmoils with assurance of salvation. And he says, uh, one day while I was out walking and musing on the blasphemy and wickedness of my heart and considering that enmity that was in me to God, that thought came to my mind, he has made peace through the blood of his cross by which I was made to see again and again that day that God and my sinful soul were at peace and could embrace and kiss each other through that blood. That was a good day. I hope I shall not forget it. Wow, that's an awesome quote. And I only know it by memory because I've quoted it so many times. That is an awesome quote. God and my sinful soul can embrace and kiss through that blood. The angels are saying that when they say peace. And then, notice the qualification, among those with whom he is well pleased. A peace is only for those who will trust in the Son. That reconciliation is only for those who trust in him. Now, I want to bring us to a close by just noting one more aspect of the announcement here. And that is, after the angels left, the shepherds look at each other and they say, let's go see this thing. It's um, It's the least climactic response to what they've just experienced. Let's go see this thing. And they go and they worship and they're filled with great joy. And then notice what Luke says. Verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. What happened to those shepherds? They became heralds of the gospel immediately. And when we see the Lord Jesus with the eyes of faith and we come to worship him, we become heralds. And they're not schooled in religious institutions and they have not had the religious pedigree of other people in the gospels but they have the very illuminating work of the Spirit of God in them, and they go, and their immediate response is, come and see what we have seen. That's always the fruit of our coming to Christ. Uh, There's so much here. I want just to recap briefly for us that when we think about the Savior, 
we need to first and foremost think about his humiliation. Do you think of him in his lowliness and his low and poor and despised condition? There's nothing about his physical appearance. There's nothing about uh, his external circumstances that make him attractive. In fact, there's everything about his circumstances at his birth that should lead people to say, this is no king. This is a poor peasant beggar baby. Um, And yet, those with the eyes of faith see who he really is, and they embrace the humiliation of the Savior, and they follow him into that humiliation, taking up their crosses after him. And then secondly, I want to ask you if you've considered the significance of the announcement to the shepherds that God saves sinners. The infinitely holy God saves messed up people who trust in Jesus Christ by faith alone, who come to him and embrace him and follow him and commit themselves to him as their Savior and their Lord. And then finally, I want to ask you if you are committed to the announcement of Christ's birth. That was the inevitable outcome. Hearing all the intricacies of the gospel, the result was God was creating a people who would carry that announcement out into the world to all that they know. Now, Christmas is a great opportunity for us to be prayerful about who in our families we can talk to about Christ. Because I'm going to guess that most of us have unbelieving family members that desperately need to hear this. And if they don't hear it from us, there's no guarantee they're hearing it from anyone else. I want to encourage us to be praying to that end during this season. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are such a God full of infinite wisdom and tender mercy and great compassion that you would give us such a Savior by giving yourself, by giving your Son to us in the manger, in lowly condition, hidden away from the prying eyes of men. We thank you that you have given us a Savior that we can come to. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you said, the one that comes to me, I will by no means cast out. We thank you that you are the Savior of sinners, that you ate and drank with sinners. We thank you that you have received sinners like us. We pray that you would move us with these things, that you would stir us up, that you would give us grace, that we might be eager to carry out the good news to those around us, having ourselves heard it and responded to it in faith. We pray, our God, that you would do a great work in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.